Take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, right toward the middle of your Bible. If you're unfamiliar, you'll go past Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 3 as we work our way through this book, section by section, seeking to understand the message that God has for us in each part of this book. We've had a lot on our minds in this service already, and so pray that the Lord will use this time to sharpen our minds around his word together. First time I remember hearing this passage was while listening to part of Harry Carey's funeral in 1998. I don't know why that stands out to me, but I remember as I listened to part of that funeral, I think it was a pretty long funeral, so I don't think I listened to a lot, but I was surprised they read the Bible at Harry Carey's funeral. And I was equally surprised that this passage was in the Bible, because they only read through verse 8, and it's a poem, and it just struck me as, even though by that time I had probably read it a couple times in my lifetime at that point, I was probably 14 at that point, uh, it just struck me like this doesn't sound like the Bible as you read this passage up through verse 8. And that's why we need to read through verse 15, because the second half of the passage we're going to read interprets the first half. And so we need these, these parts together. Uh, later on, I was surprised. I, well, I worked at a place that, that regularly played the song by the birds called Turn, Turn, Turn. And uh, if you want to hear it, uh, you can look it up on YouTube. I'm not going to sing this passage as I read it here, but, but all that to say, I became more familiar with this passage through that song as well, strangely enough. Uh, but this passage is very similar to what we studied last week, that there are gifts all around us from God's hand for us to bountifully enjoy and be grateful for And so I think maybe the best way to think about the connection between last week's passage about taking joy in the gifts God gives you and this passage about the seasons of life is that the seasons of life are the times in which we enjoy God's gifts and themselves are gifts as well. So let's read Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 through 15 and see what the seasons of life are that God sends and how we should respond to them. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. 
That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This coming week, unless something really unusual happens, I plan to go to both a first birthday party for my niece in Wisconsin and a funeral for a friend in New York State. In our minds, those two events don't seem to work together. They seem to be antithetical so that somebody might say, well, you should just pick one or the other. Go mourn the person who has died or go celebrate the person who was just born last spring and has, as far as everyone can tell, humanly speaking, a whole life ahead of her, a life of joy ahead of her. And so as it struck me that uh, this is the first time that I'll be going to a funeral for someone who was in my wedding and whose wedding I was in, to also see that person then die and be buried. It's also strange to think about the end of life and the beginning of life in the same sentence, so to speak. But the author of Ecclesiastes would not have considered it strange at all, actually. He regularly in this book takes you to the beginning of life and to the end of life and everything in between. And so from a human perspective, while one person that I'm going to celebrate this week is on the beginning of the spectrum of life, the other person is at the end of life, everything that is in between those two events is given by God and is involved in, is, is part of God's sovereignty for us. God's sovereignty is involved in everything in between those two events. And so as I thought about the strange intersection of the beginning of life and the end of life, and the fact that all of us one day were born and all of us one day will die, Solomon looked at these two life events as totally normal, totally a part of what it means to live life under the sun. In other words, in the fallen world that God has created. And he does, uh, he, he made both of these events himself. And so what this passage does is reminds us, and even as I read those first eight verses, it reminds us that every season of life is sent by God at the right time. And our response, our appropriate response, is to take those seasons and respond rightly to them. So God sovereignly sends every season of life at the right time. And we as Christians are responsible then to respond rightly, to respond correctly to these various seasons. If we only read the first eight verses, we might think this is a passage about using your time well. And there's certainly some implications about that in this passage. We should use our time well. But by understanding the second part of the passage, the interpretation, we could say, what we begin to see is that this passage isn't about us using our time well, primarily, but about the fact that God is the one who rules over the time. He's the one who keeps the clock, so to speak, ticking on and on, brings in one year and brings in another. And so this passage in verses one through eight calls us to realize that the seasons of life are gifts from God's hands. What's remarkable about this passage, at least one of the elements that's remarkable about it, is that the first line is the only one that, generally speaking, we don't really have anything to do with or any say over. A time to be born and a time to die. I realize that with some medical advancements, there are probably some people in this room who were born by planned C-section. And so in that sense, 
yes, we have you know, some hand in that, but you, you certainly don't have any specific hand in, in orchestrating a conception and then going beyond that, when that person will generally naturally be born. That is outside of our hands. Just like, again, with some medical intervention, I realize uh, this, maybe the, you put a small, tiny asterisk next to this idea, but a time to die is outside of our hands as well, particularly in the sense that we don't know when we are going to die. And again, I realize that sometimes we make a decision, a difficult decision to take someone off of life support. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's just the fact that God is the one who orders the beginning of a life from the moment of conception on all the way to the end of its life. And every other part of this poem, we could call it, this passage, is inside of those two barriers, of the beginning of life and the end of life, and gives us a set of contrasting emotions and experiences, emotions and experiences that are part of living between that moment of being born and that moment of dying. Often in this poem, you have lines that echo the one before it, but then also you have ones that contrast the one before it or show the opposite of the one before it. And so we'll work through these line by line a little bit. But it is instructive for us to realize that the Lord is the one who orders the time that we are born and the time that we die. To plant something, and I, I think I want to just generally say, we should read these Literally, if we want to put it that way. Read it the way it naturally makes sense, okay? We don't need to get all spiritual and allegorize, as maybe uh, some church fathers did with this passage and turn everything into some spiritual meaning. To plant something means to plant something. And so if you have a garden, you know that there's a time of year when you plant the seeds and you start to water them and you put them out in the sunlight, perhaps inside during, during the early spring when it's too cold to have them outside, but but you know that there's a season to plant it and there's a season to then enjoy the produce. And I think that's part of the difficulty of this poem, so to speak, is that neither one of those is bad. At one point this week, I tried to say, okay, so which category is good and which category is bad? And I realized that's just a broken way of thinking about these things. It's not going to work because it's not bad to plant and it's also not bad to enjoy what you planted. So if you plant tomatoes and you like tomatoes, it's a good thing to pluck them up and to plant them up. But what we realize is that even in the, the growth of that seed, it's a reminder that we are dependent on God, just like we are for the birth and for the death, that he's the one who causes the sun to rise again. He's the one who sends the rain. He's the one who creates this miraculous life out of this plant that we see, uh, the seeds that we plant. And then he's sovereign over the seasons and at the end of the season, we get to pluck it up and basically start over again for the next season. And again, as I thought through this passage, I thought, well, maybe there's something, maybe we could put this word kill in the bad category. Well, I didn't grow up on a farm. Some of you might have, but if you did, and particularly a farm where you were intending to get your meat from it, it was not a bad thing, so to speak, to kill your chicken so you could eat it or to kill your pig so you could put them in the freezer for months later. This is a, actually a good gift. But you contrast that with this idea of healing. Well, you know, maybe you healed that pig's broken leg at some point so that it could continue to grow until the right time, until it was fat enough, so to speak. And so, again, we don't want to say these are good categories and bad categories. We want to say these are both God-given categories and that it's appropriate to expect 
these seasons of life to come and go in the ebb and flow of God's sovereignty. The idea of breaking down and building up in the next line in verse 3. Well, what are you breaking down? Maybe you're breaking down a stone wall that's in the field you're trying to plant some of these plants in. Or maybe you're building up a wall to keep your animals safe so that they're not eaten by wolves. And so, again, you're, you're kind of putting yourself back in the agricultural context in which this was written. And a lot of it starts to make sense, even with that context in mind. There is a time to weep, though. Life is difficult. People grieve. People mourn. People sorrow. In the New Testament, we read read that we are intended as Christians to weep with those who weep, to acknowledge that life is hard, that the fallen world in which we live is often grievous and painful and discouraging and overwhelming. And maybe this morning you woke up with a heaviness over you because of the sorrows in your own life. And this passage acknowledges that that is reality and that even those times to weep are sent by God at a particular time in your life. But what's encouraging is that life is not all about weeping. We also are filled with joy. There's a time to laugh, to enjoy humor, to be lighthearted, to entertain someone and be entertained by them. If you ever need any help with that, you can come and watch my children. They are very entertaining people, generally speaking. But, you know, people say that laughter is like a medicine. It is good for us, even after you have cried, to laugh. Look at yourself in the mirror and see the streaks on your face and say, look how ridiculous I look. And even that can be a a means of God's grace to us that we find joy even in those moments of sorrow. Perhaps though you're overwhelmed with sorrow and you have been for a long time and it feels like the clouds over you are only dark and unremitting. And I would urge you to continue to fight for joy and to talk to people about it and to recognize that even this season is sent by God. People like Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression their entire lives. So don't feel like a second-rate Christian if that describes you. If you are one who is more prone to weeping than laughing, more prone to mourning than dancing, it's not a sign of spiritual immaturity necessarily. It's a sign that God works in different people's constitutions and emotional makeup in different ways. And yes, there are right ways to fight for joy, and there are right ways to have conversations with people about what maybe you're feeling and thinking and experiencing in your life. But there are times it's appropriate to weep. So don't make somebody or encourage somebody just to move on, just get over it. You've had your time. I think in our, in our context in New Jersey, that was often a sense... There was just kind of like, there was such a fast pace about life there, just outside Philadelphia, and such a harshness of the East Coast. And those of you who have lived there know what I'm talking about or have visited there extensively. People just say, get over it, or at least leave me alone. And I'm not saying any Christian ever told me that, but that was the sense you would get from people. You should just be done with that sorrow now. Christians, don't tell another Christian that, please. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Laugh with those who laugh. Enter into each other's lives in these ways. 
This line about mourning and dancing obviously is, is kind of a repetition of verse 4. It's saying the same thing, uh, the earlier line in verse 4. But this isn't the last time that Solomon talks about mourning and dancing. In a passage that we'll, we'll study in July, chapter 7, verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Let's put this in normal American speak. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. Maybe I shouldn't go to that birthday party on Saturday. No, they're both good. They both have a place. But why is it better, and Josh is going to preach that passage in July, so I'll save his thunder, but why is it better to go to a funeral than to go to a party? Well, the passage answers there in in Ecclesiastes 7, it's better because you lay it to heart, the living Take it to heart that I'm going to die one day. I'm going to be the person in the casket one day. And you live better because you take seriously what it is to mourn, to go to the house of mourning. Yes, we experience loss. Yes, there are heavy things in life. And it's important to let those weigh on us at times. Just as it's important to go to weddings, to go to the house of dancing, to go the celebrations or graduation parties and feasts. We should be able to enjoy these things as Christians and not feel guilty that we enjoy these things, even though, yes, other people are mourning. As, as my, my wife told me this week, I can't remember, you know, she's heard this from someone else. She said something like, I feel bad for feeling bad about a particular situation in our lives in light of this friend who just died and, uh, yesterday and, and his wife and their three children And as she's crying about this, my wife said, but I know this isn't the the sorrow Olympics or something along those lines. This isn't the, you know, the trials Olympics. Right. It doesn't matter if you come in second place. That's somebody else's suffering. That doesn't make your suffering second rate. And so again, don't compare someone else's suffering to your own and say, well, you can't cry because this isn't as painful as what I'm going through. No, that's not a Christian way to think about this. All of these seasons come from God's hand, and and we are going to respond differently as different people. So go to the house of mourning, but also go to the house of feasting. Go dance. Cast away stones and gather stones. What is this? What is a time to gather stones and to cast them away? Well, again, let's put ourselves in an agricultural context as this was written in. Most people had fields, had farms, had animals. So maybe these casting away stones is getting, clearing a path so you can build a shed for your animals or something along those lines. A time to gather stones is, okay, you've just cleared the way. Now you actually build. Now you make a wall. Now you protect yourself and secure a place for the future uh, through a beautiful home. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing it's appropriate to give people hugs sometimes. And in times of COVID, it's not. But, but generally speaking, sometimes it's, it's the right thing to go up to somebody and put your arm around them. In a marital context, there are times for physical intimacy, and there are times where it's just not appropriate, and you should give space, and you should give time. But don't throw away one or the other. In a church context, again, even if you're not talking about an actual hug, there are times to move toward someone else, to pursue a relationship with them. And there are times to pull back and recognize that person's probably not in a 
spiritual condition right now where they're going to be receptive to a hard conversation. I'm going to wait a little while. I'm going to pray for them in the meantime. I will embrace them by praying for them, writing a note to them perhaps, but I'm not going to be all up in their grill (laughs) waiting until they respond rightly. Give some space, give some time. And so we need to have some wisdom, exercise wisdom and generosity in Christ toward each other in these ways. There's a time to seek and a time to lose. We pursue, we invest, we're diligent. We order our priorities to seek what we need. And in doing so, we often reveal what we love. What is important to us is often what we seek through our time and our money. But then there's also a time to lose. Admit you'll never find something again. You'll never be in a particular season of life again. You know, when you often hear, well, you know, I wish I didn't get older. Well, Perhaps getting older is a part of losing. Um, we, we, we realize this is an end of a season. There's some closure here. That, that baseball, um, not story per se, but you know, article I read a few weeks ago where the, the person was mourning the end of another baseball season. It, comes, it feels like it's time for baseball to keep going. And it's taken away from us. And this is often the way it is in our losses. It feels like this should be still available to me. That no longer is. This is part of the seasons of life that God sends our way, a sense of loss and ending and closure. There is a time when it is right to keep something, to keep uh, something that's particularly meaningful to you, to, to save up so that then you can go, you know, build your barn in this context or, or bless other people. There's also a time to cast away Past week, my wife and I went through old boxes of memory items, like the purse that Clarissa carried on our wedding day, things like that. And, we just, and her wedding dress itself. We thought, what are we going to do with this? She's never going to wear this again in the will of God. So we gave it away. There's a time to do that. And so a hoarder might need to remember there's a time to give away. Someone who's particularly ridiculously stringent and lives in a tiny house and these kind of things, well, maybe there's... There's a place for possessions. There's a place for memories and a, a place for saving up for the future. There's a time to tear. Sometimes that's accidental. Sometimes it's on purpose. Maybe something loses its value when it's torn. But maybe something becomes more valuable. By you have two of them instead of one now. There's also a time to, sit, to sow, to repair to restore, to strengthen something, to be resourceful with something. And this is important for us to balance as well. When is it time to divide and conquer, so to speak, with something we have? When is it time to repair and restore something? There's a time to keep silence. This is difficult for some of us, just as it's difficult for some of us to speak. There's a time where it's right to say hard things. And there's a time where it's right to keep your mouth shut. Well, when's the right time? That's where we need wisdom, isn't it? Boy, this whole passage makes us realize what Ecclesiastes is really given to do is to create hearts bent toward wisdom, yearning and praying for God to give us wisdom. And this whole poem, this whole song makes us say, I need wisdom to know when to gather and when to keep, or when to gather and when to cast away, when to keep and when to lose. All of these require God's wisdom. When is it right for me to keep silence so I don't 
needlessly offend someone? And when's it right for me to speak a word fitly spoken? As Proverbs urges us to do. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And then this, this last line counters that, kind of the opposite of, of that line. There's a time for war. You can maybe look at it as an X. You have the love and the peace on, on opposite ends, and you have the hate and the war on the opposite ends. There's a time to love, to marry someone, to help someone, to serve and bless and actively embrace and enjoy someone. And there's also a time to reject something. That word hate can also mean to reject, to push away, to avoid it. It's appropriate for us as humans to feel disgust when someone's life has been ruined by someone else's selfish sin. It's appropriate for us to feel hatred toward that and disgust toward that. God himself feels that way. So in one way, what we could say is this passage urges us to respond the way that Jesus himself responded. Philip Ryken, he's the president at Wheaton College, in a little book he has about Ecclesiastes called why Everything Matters, has a whole page devoted. I didn't bring it with me because I figured it would take too long to read the whole section. But if you want a photocopy of it, I can do that. But he talks through how Christ himself fulfilled all of these seasons perfectly. There were times where he kept his mouth closed, and there were times where he spoke the right word. There were times when he hated the way that someone was being abused. I remember when he says something like, if you... Um, hurt one of my little children. It's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck. That's him hating something. There's, and of course, throughout Christ's life, we see his love for people, for individuals, even those that other people have hated and pushed away. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And what we are reminded of when we think about war is that conflict, this world was not meant for this. This is part of living under the sun, part of living under the fall, is that there are enemies. There are reasons for us to lock our doors. But it was not intended to be that way. And even this line itself makes us yearn for the day when we live in a place where there is no war. Back in the late 1919s, 1920s, that time, the Chicago mayor named Bill Thompson said, I want Chicago to be a place that is the safest city in the world. And he was going to get rid of all the thugs, and make this a paradise-like city. I don't know. John and Michelle, was he successful in that vision? Has that, has that lasted today? It didn't even last in his own lifetime because people are sinful. and What we need is not better policies. We need new life. We need the new creation. We long for that day when it when life is described by love and peace rather by, than by hate and war. When we have unity and rest, we're like-minded, we grant each other forgiveness. All is calm and quiet. These opposite actions and activities and emotions all make us realize our lives are in God's hands. Our times are in his hands. And maybe you are particularly prone to grasping after trying to make your life a particular kind of life, to be in control of where we're going next and how we're going to get there and who's driving and all the details. I'm not talking about my marriage right now, I promise, but maybe I'm talking about yours. Uh, just kidding. But what I'm saying is maybe this, is, this passage is a call to you to let go a little bit, 
to recognize my life is in God's hands, not my hands. This passage, though, is not about how we use our time. It's about the fact that God rules over all times. So accept his seasons of life, his God-given seasons, as a gift from his hands. And that's really, that draws us to the second half of this passage now, which we'll move through a little bit more quickly. The seasons of life, verses 9 through 15 tell us, are designed to provoke a right response in our hearts. Verse 9 reminds us of chapter 1, verse 3, which says, What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? And reminds us of chapter 2, verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? You see what he's doing? He's asking the same question over again, again and again, and he's meditating on it from one angle and from another. He says, what do I really get out of all my work in these seasons? And he tells us, here's what God has given us. Here's the business he has given us to be busy with. What is it? He's made everything beautiful in its time. And so he's going to say in a moment, be joyful. Be happy. Take God's gifts as gifts. Maybe they're not going to last forever. That's fine. What God does lasts forever, but nothing in our lives will last forever. What he also says, though, is in verse 11, he has put eternity into man's heart. That means we have a sense in our hearts that there's something that lasts. On the very last page of Steve Jobs' biography, Apple creator and CEO for a long time. This is what he said shortly before he died. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. His biographer, Walter Jacobson, says, he admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of a desire to believe in an afterlife. Jobs says, I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom that just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives. Sounds to me like Steve Jobs either had read Ecclesiastes or needed to read Ecclesiastes. We pursue a little bit of wisdom. We accumulate a little bit of wisdom in our lives, and then we die. What's the point? Well, One of the points, so to speak, is that God has put eternity in our hearts. We have a built-in awareness that there's something more. That's what he means by God has put eternity in our hearts. And Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 1 when he says that foolish, ungodly people have suppressed the knowledge of God. They've taken what's natural inside their hearts to believe that we can see in the created order around us, and they've suppressed it foolishly and unrighteously. So with the knowledge of eternity in our hearts, be joyful, be happy, and also be holy. Verse 12 says, we should be joyful and do good, both be holy and happy. The world would say those are antithetical ideas. God would say, no, you are holiest when you are happy in God, and you are happiest when you are holy in God. Enjoy your work, verse 13, whatever that work may be. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Don't be discouraged that somebody's going to come and work on the factory line after you do. Be grateful that God has given you another day to do that work yourself and 
Receive it as a gift during this season of your life. And then verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Fear of God is talked about throughout this book. This is the first reference to it though. So I'll just say the fear of God is taking God seriously. He's not some stuffed animal that you cuddle up next to and then you throw onto the other side of the room until you need it again. Take God seriously. This concluding poem, I think verse 15 really is a poem, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. So in other words, the past is in God's hands, the future is in God's hands. And this last line, I think, is actually alluding to the very end of Ecclesiastes. Let me read this. Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment. God seeks what has been driven, this line says. I think it is the idea that God takes account of everything. There's nothing outside of his scope or his understanding or his knowledge. This is all part of what it is to live in the seasons that God has given us. Acknowledge that God has put eternity in your hearts. And with that in mind, be joyful, be happy, be holy, enjoy your work, fear God. About 15 years ago, a man named Steve Irwin, some of you may be familiar with him, he was an Australian man who would go out into wilderness settings often and pursue crocodiles or all kinds of other dangerous created beings and would try and hold them or take pictures with them or jump on their backs or all kinds of things. And I'm sure he took those animals really seriously. But then he died when he got too close to a stingray in the Great Barrier Reef. It stung him and he died in Cairns, Australia. He went the way of Solomon and every other person in humanity and he died. His life was behind him. Perhaps, I don't know, perhaps because he didn't take that stingray quite seriously enough. He got a little too close. This passage urges you to take God seriously, to recognize that your life is in his hands, that he's the one who sends the season. Yes, the good and the bad, but also the things that are good now and maybe not as good later, the life and the death, the beginning and the end, it's all in God's hands. So respond rightly by fearing him, taking joy in him, doing good, being happy, and being holy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he is the one who makes us happy and who makes us holy, that he is the one who perfectly feared you. So we pray that we would walk in your ways. We would embrace a life of faith and repentance, of joy and holiness, of fearing you while enjoying all the seasons you send our way. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.